Anybody? I don't think. There you go. First, I was wondering. Okay. Good morning, everybody. Find Genesis chapter 31. We actually are toward the latter part of our study uh, through the through this section, anyway, of the book of Genesis. And and while you find Genesis 31, let me give you some exciting news. You are sitting, church family, in a debt free facility today. Hey, there you go. That's right. That's right. I wanted to to give you that update because of your generosity and your giving. We have paid off this facility. It is done. There is no more left on the loan. And this is a huge accomplishment, a huge step for us, and, and really a long time goal that I know our faith family has had. So many of you may want to ask before we jump into the text, well, what's next, right? What's next? So just briefly, leadership's going to be casting some vision later in the summer with some of that. But let me, let me reassure you, we've not lost sight on our vision to eventually get across the street and create a home there that'll be more than a home. It'll be a launching pad for ministry to our community and to our world for decades to come. And so in the meantime, as we're coming out of COVID and preparing for our future, let me, let me ask three things of you and whether you're listening online or here, wherever you may hear this, let me ask you three things to just try to commit to uh, in the future. One, we continue to need uh, your giving. There's lots of ministry we're able to do in the world with funding our missionary to Peru and doing a ton of cool stuff you can do when you're out of debt. <laughs> so continue to give and we can really begin to make incredible impacts through your tithes and offerings to further uh, the gospel to the world. Just a reminder, we always have the basket at the front. We now have one at the back. And we also have online giving that I've talked about before. Second, we continue to need volunteers. And so if you are not serving on a ministry team, we need you. <laughs> for something. We need you, whether it's kids, whether it's up here for worship, whether it's tech team. God has given our church incredible room to grow, but we've got to make ourselves ready for it. And so if you are not on a a ministry team and you'd like to, you can see me, you can see an elder, you can see one of our ministry team leads to get connected. But even if it's standing at the door on Sunday morning, even if it's serving on tech, serving in kids, serving with our youth, whatever it is, we need you. And finally, I would just encourage you to try to, to please make church attendance a priority. I think if, if COVID's taught us anything, it's that we need one another. We need one another here. We need each other. We need you here, not simply to fill a seat. That isn't what this is about, but rather to do life together. And there's going to be some incredible opportunities we're going to talk about in the future and also talk about tonight at that small group training about doing life together in the days ahead. So thank you for your support, your love, your generosity. And with all of that out of the way, let's get to God's word, right? Let's look Genesis 31. This is really one of the last really long passages in, in this section of Genesis that we'll look at. So we're going to look at the whole passage together. Genesis 31, beginning in verse 1. The word of God says, Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all this wealth. 
And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats matted with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flocks are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, is is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our fathers belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock and his possession that he had acquired in Padam Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. When it was time, when, when it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tents in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might send you away with mirth and song, with tambourine and lyre? And why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you've longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Jacob answered and said to Laban, Because I was afraid. For I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your God shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, 
point out what I have that is yours and take it. Now Laban did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but he did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and set on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen so that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you? I bore the loss of it myself. For my hand you required it whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was, by day the heat consumed me, the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house, I've served you 14 for your two daughters and six years for your flocks, and you have changed my wages 10 times. For if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children whom they have bore? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jager Shahadalatha, but Jacob called it Galid. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of each other's sight. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness, and the pillar is a witness, that I will not pass over this heap to you, and you will not pass over this heap and pillar to me to do harm the God of Abraham and God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac, and Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. This is the word of God. Storytelling is a powerful tool. In fact, 
every culture and every family tells stories to one another to form their values and how they look at the world. And I want us to know when we use the term story, that doesn't necessarily mean it's made up or untrue. Consider the way that that in America we teach our young people how to understand ourselves by telling the story of our nation, how it was founded and how it progressed, and that by telling, retelling that history, we we are distilling certain values and certain understandings of their place in this nation and our place in the world. And the way we tell these stories impacts how we see ourselves and how we understand our purpose in this life. Everyone understands their life at the intersection of their story and other stories. And one of the stories that formed and shaped the people of God for centuries was the story of the Exodus. In fact, what happened at the exodus of the nation of Israel when they were rescued out from slavery to Pharaoh and the nation of Egypt becomes a picture or a paradigm or a model for believers even in the modern day. This was true not simply for the nation of Israel, but friends, it is true for us as followers of Jesus. Here's your main point this morning you'll find in your notes. That the exodus is a paradigm for understanding Jacob's story, the nation's story, and your story. The exodus, God's rescue of his people out from underneath slavery, is a paradigm for understanding the story of Jacob, who we're reading about, the story of the nation of Israel, and ultimately even your story. Now, what was the exodus? Some of us might have heard about it through watching like the Prince of Egypt or something like that. Well, there's actually a book that that movie's based on, right? And it's called the Bible, right? And, it's one, and if we're not familiar, we can't assume all of us are familiar, that there was an Old Testament event that that records that's important enough that it actually gets the name of the second book of the Bible. You can read about the exodus in the book of Exodus, right? And here is a broad definition of what an exodus is. You'll see this in your notes as well. That an exodus is God's rescue of his people from slavery to a wicked master by his power for his glory. So the exodus, any form of exodus, is God's rescue of his people from slavery to a wicked master by his power for his glory glory. And in particular, the exodus most of the Israelites would have thought about was when they were rescued from the Egyptians by the power of God. That, that It's a theme that appears throughout the scriptures, and it is a central theme for all God's people, both those who lived before the nation and after. And Exodus 31, I believe, is a foreshadowing, a picture of this exodus that would come through Jacob's children. And so before we dive into Genesis 31, let's ask one question that you may be thinking. You may be going, what does the life of Jacob have to do with the nation of Israel? What What is this guy in Genesis 31? You're like, Matt, you know this. We're in the book of Genesis. Exodus is the next book over, right? I promise I didn't. I didn't get the wrong book today. What does this have to do? They're hundreds of years apart. Well, let's consider this. First, consider the author of Genesis, that Genesis was written by Moses to the nation of Israel around 1440 
B.C. So Moses, that's who we traditionally believe to have written Exodus, is writing the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the nation of Israel between when they escaped Egypt and when he died. So Moses was writing this book to the people who had experienced the Exodus. And so, of course, there's going to be some of these relevant themes there. Genesis had to do with Israel because it was written to them and for them. Consider next that Jacob is the father of the nation. Consider that Jacob is the father of the nations. We've seen over the last several chapters that Jacob, last week, right, gave birth to 11 sons through four different women, right? And And that while in slavery, these 11 sons are going to go on to become 11 of the tribes of Israel. And that Jacob is a sort of father, a head, a representative of the nation. In fact, in chapter 32, next week, we're going to see Jacob is actually going to be renamed to Israel. And finally, I want us to consider that there are a number of parallels. There are a number of parallels between the life of Jacob and what the nation of Israel goes through. And it's truly incredible. That's actually where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, is considering incredible parallels between what Jacob experiences and what the nation that would come through him would ultimately experience. Consider this. Jacob has been sent out of the promised land and has spent decades as a slave to Laban. He's been told now to return to the land, but in the meantime, God has blessed Jacob while in slavery. God has multiplied his sons. He's multiplied his flocks. God even has taken most of Laban's flocks and most of Laban's stuff and given it to Jacob. And even Laban had experienced blessing by proxy. Consider last week we saw these words in chapter 30, verse 30. Look at this. For you had little before I came, and it has increased abundantly, and the Lord has blessed you wherever I turned. This is Jacob speaking to Laban. But now when shall I provide for my own household also? So Jacob has been blessed, and Laban was blessed by extension. And though Laban had been blessed thanks to Jacob, Laban was a brutal master. He'd subjected him to intense slavery And yet it was here in the midst of this slavery that God's work of exodus would begin, particularly consider in the life of Jacob, God's protection of Jacob, or God's preparation of Jacob. I'm sorry, I know where I am, right? God's preparation of Jacob. God was preparing him through this slavery. Look at chapter 31, verse 6. Into our passage this morning, chapter 31 Verse 6, Jacob says, You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. So Laban has cheated Jacob out of his wages, and behind the scenes, God was working, taking all of Laban's stuff and giving it to Jacob. Slowly and steadily, Jacob was plundering Laban by the hand of God. This was God's preparation of him. And even Rachel and Leah realized this. Look in verse 16 of chapter 31. Look at this. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. 
God, even in decades of incredible suffering for Jacob, was preparing him for a time when he would be set free from Laban's slavery and bring all of his stuff with him. And God did the same thing to the nation of Israel during their enslavement to Egypt. God prepared them for their exodus from a wicked master by his power and for his glory. Look what the Lord would say later to Moses out of the burning bush. This is Exodus chapter 3. Look at this. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. In other words, God had multiplied his people while they were under the Egyptian slavery and had, but, and had multiplied them in the midst of their affliction. And God's purpose for all of this was to rescue them, to bring them out of the land of Egypt, and to get them back to the promised land, again, by his power for his glory. Look what God tells Pharaoh, Exodus chapter 19 verse or Exodus chapter 9 verse 16. Look at this. But for this purpose I have raised you up, Pharaoh, to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God was working in the afflictions of his people so that his power would be displayed in the fact that he would rescue them through this exodus. And friends, This isn't simply true for Jacob or true for the nation of Israel. It's true for you as well. God was working in their suffering, and friends, God is working in your suffering in order to display his power. Paul says that he was given a thorn in the flesh so that God's presence and power and grace might be shown to be sufficient. God was preparing Jacob and preparing Israel through the multiplication of themselves and the multiplication of their affliction. God was preparing them for an incredible work of his power and glory. And so you ask yourselves, how much more is God working in the midst of my suffering? How much, if if God was at work in the sufferings of Jacob and in the sufferings of Israel, God is also at work in your sufferings. God is at work in your sufferings. You can see that there in your notes. God was at work in the sufferings of Jacob, in the sufferings of Israel, and in your sufferings, friends. How much more is God at work in what you're going through? God heard their cries He responded by power and glory. And friends, it may take decades. Jacob served Laban for 20 years in the midst of all of this. But God was doing something in those decades and in the midst of his affliction. We move from God's preparation of Jacob next to God's presence with Jacob. God had prepared him through this suffering, but now God was going to be with him. Jacob has Laban's daughters, his flocks, his servants. All his stuff is now Jacob's. And now it was time for Jacob to flee, and he wasn't going to flee in his own power. Look at verse 3. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. The chapter echoes this promise of God's presence over and over again. Look at verse 5. And said to them, 
I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. God even sends an angel to comfort Jacob with any fear he may have. Look at verse 11. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped and spotted and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you, that I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go from this land and return to the land of your kindred. God was going to be with him through all of this, and he was going to bring him back to the promised land. So he packs up his family on camels, And he heads hundreds of miles back home. Now, let's think about this, because often we can read this and not give it a lot of thought. Think about this. Jacob hasn't been home in decades. He doesn't know what he's going to encounter on the way. He doesn't even know if home's still there. He can't just pull up Google Maps and go home and get there, right? Imagine trying to travel somewhere, and it's been 20 years since you last traveled there, and you don't have GPS, (laughs) right? And add on top of that, he has four wives and 11 kids coming along on the road trip. He's got cattle to care for, and I hope that this will make all of us feel better about any stressful summer travels we've had to endure. We weren't on camelback. We didn't have 11 kids. Consider, he didn't even have iPads to keep the 11 kids busy. He had his four wives offering advice as to where he needed to turn and where he needed to go, and Jacob had to figure out what he was going to do, right? That's right. He had to pick what he was going to do, right? That's right. If anyone needed God's presence, it was Jacob, right? With all of this going on, and God was with him. And this was a reminder to the nation of Israel in their day that God would be with them, Exodus chapter 3, verse 12. He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Friends, there are truly no greater words than God is with you. Than him saying, as I'm bringing you up out of slavery, I'm going to be with you. And friends, doesn't Jesus make the same promise to us? At the end of the Great Commission, he sends his church out into the world to make disciples, and he says, surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See this in your notes. God promises to be with us. God will be with his church, with his people, just as he promised to be with Jacob and Israel. God was preparing Jacob through his sufferings to rescue him out from under the hand of Laban. God was promising to have his presence with him. But we see third, God's protection of Jacob. God's protection of Jacob. Unbeknownst to Jacob, God was working in Laban's life to secure his safe travels. Think about this. So Jacob and his family had fled three days before Laban knew anything about it. Laban takes off after him. And in verse 21, it shows how he had made his way through the waters of the Euphrates. So he got pretty far. And as all of this was happening, Laban had a dream. Look at verse 22. 
When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. Think about this. So Laban then gets on his camel and chases after Jacob. One pastor compared this to an ancient Near Eastern car chase or sort of a camel chase, right? He's on his way there. Laban follows after Jacob, and eventually he catches up to him. And wouldn't that have been your biggest fear if you were Jacob? I mean, think about this. If he catches up to me, is he, is he going to kill me? Will he steal his stuff? Is he going to send me back into worse slavery? Jacob had likely worried about all of this, and yet God was at work behind the scenes. God came to Laban in this dream and said, don't touch him. Don't touch him. I will protect him. Look at when Laban catches up to him. Look at the conversation that ensues. Verse 25. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tents in the hill country, and Laban was with his kinsmen, and they pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with myrrh and songs, with tambourine and lyre. Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. So see this. Laban comes to Jacob here. And he gaslights him. He says, Jacob, you're the crazy one. I would have sent you away with this huge party. Why were you scared of me? And we all know Laban wasn't going to do that, right? We all know Laban was not going to let Jacob get away with some huge party and send him off. But verse 29 is the key here. It was in his power to harm him. But God appeared in this dream and said, Laban, don't even speak a word to Jacob, either good or bad. Laban obviously didn't fear God enough to actually do what he said because he did speak to Jacob, right? But he at least feared God enough not to do him any harm. And behind the scenes, God was working for Jacob's protection And Jacob came to recognize that the Lord was behind all of this. Look at verse 42. Look at verse 42. Look at this. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. God had been with him and protected him. Notice the titles he gives there. He says, God of Abraham. He calls to mind God's faithfulness to his grandfather, Abraham. But also he calls God the fear of Isaac. The one who should have had the reverence and awe of his father, Isaac. And this title actually is going to appear again later in the conversation after they make a covenant. Look at verse 43. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, The daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. 
At least he thinks it is. He thinks it's his, right? But what can I do this day for these my daughters or for their children whom they have born? Come now, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to his kinsmen, gather stones. And they took pillars and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sahadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. Now, those words, Laban here is speaking Aramaic, if you're curious, and uh, Jacob here is speaking Hebrew, and both of those words mean a heap of witness. So they have this thing here that's going to be a witness for them. Laban says, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah, for he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we're out of one another's sights. If you oppress my daughters, or if you take wives besides my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. So they make this covenant, they eat, they put this stone together. This was pretty normal in the ancient Near East, that if you're going to make a covenant, they would do things like this. If you're going to make a contract, And Laban binds Jacob to take care of Leah and Rachel. Don't oppress them. Don't marry other wives. And Laban is bound not to kill Jacob. (laughs) Sounds like a pretty good deal, right? But notice in passing, Laban threatens Jacob regarding taking more wives. But wasn't it Laban's idea that Jacob take more wives in the first place? Wasn't Laban the one who tricked him into marrying Leah to begin with and then also offers him Rebekah? So Laban here has no self-awareness, and he really takes no responsibility upon himself for these past actions. Let's look at how this finishes, verse 51. Then Laban said to Jacob, See this heap and the pillar which I've set between you and me, this heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you And you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, the God of their father, judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. Early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So the whole scene ends at peace due to this covenant. Neither is to do harm. And Jacob swears by the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor, who were relatives of Laban and the fear of Isaac. He swears by the God who had protected him and wanted to make sure that he received all the praise that was due. And yet, it's clear throughout this whole, this whole account here that the God of Abraham was not the God of Laban. Laban was not someone who believed the same thing that Jacob was believing. He didn't believe the promise given to Abraham and Isaac and now Jacob. And it's implied by the way he speaks about Yahweh, but also how he treats God and his promises with such indifference. Let's come to our last point together this morning we see in this passage we've seen God's protection or his preparation his presence his protection and finally let's see God's primacy over Laban's gods primacy means God's over them he's number one he's better than them because in the middle of this section while we were reading there was this 
whole episode where Rachel stole Laban's gods, right? Look at verse 19. As Jacob was getting ready to flee from Laban, Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. So Laban would have had these idols just sitting around his house, different places. We've seen some interesting practices from Laban, right? Last week we saw he was practicing divination, and now he just sort of keeps idols hanging around the house, and we've seen his own shrewdness to his family. You know, Laban's not, not, a, not a godly guy. That's pretty clear, right? And so Rachel likely took these gods as an act of unbelief. She'd grown up with them around the house, and she's like, well, it can't hurt to take some of these along. They might help keep us safe and cause us to prosper. And yet, through the idols being stolen, God was displaying his primacy, his superiority, that he is the only true God, not these so-called idols that were made from hands. Consider what question the whole episode begs. Think about this. What kind of God can be stolen? How could the universe, the one who's supposed to be ruler over the universe, be taken by Rachel? And Laban comes and asks for the gods. Look at verse 30. Now you've gone away because you long greatly for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? Jacob, we're told, didn't know that Rachel had stole them. And so look what happens, verse 33. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of his two female servants, but did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel's saddle and set on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, Let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you, for the way of woman is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. The whole episode should raise some questions in our mind. Laban was giving worship to these gods, to these idols. What form, what worship should you give to something that could be put in a bag? What worship should you give to something that you have to search for? What kind of God could be set on by Rachel? And it said the way of woman was upon her, so I can say this this way. It was her time of the month. <laughs> I think I can say that that way, and we all understand what that means. And so in the Old Testament, this God would have now been unclean. And so what God can become unclean? Not the one true God. Do we see how this text is subtly mocking the very idea of giving your worship to something other than the one true God? Do you see that? How ridiculous it is to worship something you made. How ridiculous it is to worship an idol. And this displays God's greatness exactly as the Exodus did in Israel. Throughout the plagues that would come upon Egypt, God would be displaying his greatness over all that Egypt worshipped. He would black out the sun, which was something the Egyptians would worship. He would turn water into blood. He would display that all the things that they would worship were not true gods at all. And friends, as Christians, God wants to do that through your life as well. God doesn't want us to try to mix the God of the Bible with idolatry and false religion. He won't have it. God doesn't want to simply have one part of your life, but let me have this other part of my life back at the house nobody knows about. No, God wants your whole life 
your everything, and he wants to display his greatness through you. Consider 1 Corinthians 10.31, a familiar verse if you've been in church much in your life, but I don't think we give it much thought, do we? Look at this. So whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So again, I don't think we've given this much thought. What does it mean to give glory to God? It is to say We're going to do this. How about this? Because I'm almost done. I'm like, man, am I really preaching that long? There's a way to cut a guy off. But let's get back into it. We're almost done. I promise. We're almost done. To give glory to God is to say to the world by how you live, by what you say, by what you say no to, that God is greater. Friends, whether it be the idols of government or the idols of the world, or, or, or this idea that, that politics can somehow save us, we are to declare that God is greater than all of those. See, idols can be stolen and made unclean. Governments can be toppled. Even if your guy wins, he's probably out in another four to eight years anyway. Those are not saviors, friends, because the sovereign of the universe remains unaffected. He is immovable, and unshakable. And when he desires to display his power and to resound his own glory, he rescues his people from rulers and powers. And this is exactly what God does in the life of Jacob in Genesis 31 and in the nation of Israel in the Exodus. And friends, it's ultimately what God wants to do through you as a follower of Jesus. Let's consider this final point at the bottom of your notes because Jesus redeemed us through an exodus. This exodus theme isn't just something in the life of Jacob or even in the nation of Israel, but rather, friends, Jesus wanted us to understand what he did through his death, burial, and resurrection as a sort of exodus from sin and death. Jesus' transfiguration, when he's on the mountain, he shined forth of all his glory, and his disciples stood amazed. And here what's, here's what Luke Told us. Luke chapter 9, verse 30 to 31. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, and they appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Now, in your Bible, there's probably a note, and if you look down, the word departure there is the word exodus, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. So Luke wants us to understand that what Jesus underwent through the cross and resurrection was an exodus. But this time, it wouldn't be an exodus from, from, from other worldly powers, but rather from slavery to the power of sin and death, and that God would set us free by his power for his glory. He would, through the gospel, bring us back to the promised land by restoring us to the to right relationship with God. In his death, Jesus suffered the full weight of death's power and sting, and he was buried in a borrowed tomb, and on the third day he rose again to defeat the power of sin, to plunder the grave spoils, and to declare that he is God over all the universe, not worthless idols. 
Jesus ascended into heaven, and friends, through faith in him, you can be united to Jesus so that whatever was true of him becomes true of you. Through being in union with him, you can be in right relationship with God, forgiven of your sins, and raised to newness of life. Jesus redeems us through the exodus of his death and resurrection, and he is bringing us with him into the land of life. But let me close with this. This text isn't simply some big, um, very, some big abstract theological reality. This text is inviting a response from you. God's word always invites a response for us. How are we to respond to this? We're not to be like Laban who pursues his hope and idols made by hands and through trusting in divination and worldly wisdom, but rather we're to be like Jacob who sets our hopes on the Lord and that by doing so we experience an exodus from sin and death. And this exodus from death is actually what the Lord's Supper is all about. See, Laban and Jacob commemorated their covenant with a meal. This is what people did in the Bible when they made covenants. That's actually part of the reason that historically we have had meals after weddings, right? Was to celebrate and commemorate the covenant made between a husband and a wife. And Israel celebrated their exodus through a Passover meal, and we celebrate ours through the Lord's Supper. And the Lord's Supper is meant to be a regular reminder of your place in God's story. The bread reminds us of his broken body, the cup of his shed blood, a reminder of all that Jesus has done for us to forgive us of our sins. More than simply a ritual, but rather a means of reorienting your perspective around what matters most. Friends, and in the supper is an invitation. An invitation for believers to feast together with Christ and to remember the glorious promises he purchased for us. But for those who are not followers of Jesus, this meal is an invitation not to eat, but to watch and to believe. For by eating the bread and drinking the cup, the Bible says we proclaim his death again until he comes. We get a second sermon in picture form through the Lord's Supper. And I would ask you, do you know Jesus today? Has he taken you out from underneath the weight of slavery to sin and death? He can today, and not through works done in righteousness, not through coming and filling a chair on Sunday morning, but rather through faith in Jesus Christ. If you'd like to talk more about becoming a follower of Christ, I'd love to talk more with you. There'd be other people here who would love to talk more with you, but as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper together, Let's take the next few moments to reflect, to wait for one another, and to worship the Lord together. Then I'll come back up and, and talk us through taking the Lord's Supper together as a family of faith. This is a family meal for people whom God has brought out of slavery to sin and death. No more bound by fear, but freed children of the King. Let's pray together. Father God, we're thankful that you do rescue us out from sin and death. We're thankful that you have rescued us from, from fear and bondage. We're thankful that the exodus is something that's meant to reorient our whole life. 
And Lord, as we reflect now and prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper, I pray that through through anything that, that may have gone wrong, through, through, through all of that we're doing today, that we'd be focused on you, that we'd put aside any technical issues, that we'd put aside any, any ineloquence on my part and focus in on what this is about, on who you are and what you have done. We're thankful for your goodness and your kindness to us and ask that you would bless us in these moments ahead as we worship you and make much of you together. And I ask and I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and sing with us.
God's grace truly is amazing. You can be seated for just a moment. God's grace truly uh, is amazing to us. We truly have been ransomed. Exodus bought with a price and brought into right relationship with God. If that is your testimony, then the Lord's Supper is the meal for you. It's a meal we celebrate together as a church family and the Bible says to do so regularly. We here have started to do so uh, on the first Sunday of the month and to celebrate together uh, what Jesus has done in his amazing grace. So I would encourage you to take a moment to figure out how to open this because it's not intuitive in and of itself, right? I've got to do this one-handed, so that's interesting, right? And before we take it together, I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. First Corinthians chapter 11, Paul tells us this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For I received from the Lord what also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also... In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This, what we did, was a second sermon, a sermon in picture form, a proclamation and a reminder of God's goodness and kindness and his gospel that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed for us. We close our service with a benediction, a blessing to send us out into the world to proclaim that salvation has come and God's rescue has come through Jesus. This from 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. <laughs> 